This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from the foreword. On one of Los Angeles's busy streets, vandals plaster anti-Semitic slurs on billboards. The goal of this, yet again, to create division and play on age-old tropes of Jewish control, said Jeffrey Abrams, the Anti-Defamation League's regional director for Los Angeles. By Adam Kovac. Los Angeles police are investigating anti-Semitic vandalism on several billboards facing major streets in heavily Jewish neighborhoods of the city. The slogan, Zionist Jews Control America, was printed on a large sticker plastered across two of the billboards. Another sticker on the same billboards read, at Defend the Human Race. On Wednesday, an Instagram page by that name was taken down. Its Twitter account, which has 23 followers and contains two posts, both anti-vaccine messages from January, remains online. A local ADL official said its extremism experts are unfamiliar with the group. A photo posted to social media shows a third billboard, which does not name Jews or Zionists, but seems to play on a similar trope that falsely claims that Jews control international bodies. It calls for the abolition of all corrupt institutions, including NATO, the World Health Organization, and the Council of Foreign Relations. The billboards appeared as the Los Angeles Jewish community began its observances of Sukkot and grapples with other incidents of anti-Semitism. Jeffrey Abrams, the Anti-Defamation League's regional director for Los Angeles, said his group has also been in contact with the LAPD about the billboards, which he said create division and play on age-old tropes of Jewish control. Joanna Mendelson, a vice president at the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, said her group has filed a hate crimes report and that the stickers had intentionally been placed on billboards in an area where many Jews live. They are messages being sent to the larger community, she said, adding that police have been responsive to its concerns about the billboards. It is not clear if more billboards had been vandalized. Mendelssohn said that her organization has been told by one of the companies that owned the billboard, uh, owned a vandalized billboard, that the stickers had been removed. Passers-by noticed the stickers early in the week. One of the vandalized billboards advertises the law firm Jacobian Myers. A lawyer there told the forward that it had called the billboard company, which had in turn called the police. LAPD detectives working on the investigation could not be reached for comment. A, spoke, a spokesperson for Instagram's parent company, Meta, said Thursday that the at Defend the Human Race account appeared to have been removed by its owner, but said that due to privacy rules they could not share the name associated with the account. Los Angeles has experienced a rise in anti-Semitic incidents in recent years, according to the ADL. The billboard vandalism comes on the heels of an incident last week in which a man disrupted services at several Los Angeles synagogues and threatened to kill congregants. Mendelssohn said the vandalism has been particularly upsetting in that it coincides with a scandal over an audio tape uh, an audio tape leaked early this week of Los Angeles City Council members, one of whom has resigned using racist and anti-Semitic language. 
And next, we'll go over to JTA for that story. Los Angeles council member recorded making racist comments also discussed Jews disparagingly by Asaf Elia Shalev. The woman who resigned last Sunday as president of Los Angeles' city council after an audio clip leaked revealing racist comments she made about black and indigenous people also spoke derisively about Jews in the same recording the Los Angeles Times reported Tuesday. Nori Martinez made the comments about a year ago in conversation with two other council members, Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, and a local labor leader. The revelation over the weekend caused Martinez to step down first as president, then on Wednesday from the council entirely. Protesters had interrupted Tuesday's council meeting to demand the resignations of all three council members, a call that U.S. President Joe Biden has joined as he heads to Los Angeles for a four-day tour. On the recording, Ron Herrera, who has resigned as president of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, can be heard speaking about former State Assemblyman Richard Katz, who is Jewish, and was at the time serving on a city commission charged with redrawing council district boundaries. Katz was appointed to the role by city councilman Bob Blumenfeld, who is also Jewish. I'm sure Katz and his crew have an agenda, Herrera said. Martinez responded by saying, Udios cut their deal with the South, with South LA. They're going to screw everybody else. Udios means Jews in Spanish and South L.A. is where much of the city's black population is concentrated. The scandal engulfing Los Angeles politics broke out last Sunday and escalated while Jewish institutions were closed and some Jews were abstaining from using electronics in observance of the Sukkot holiday on Monday and Tuesday. Despite the unusual interjection of the U.S. president, it is being overshadowed by a different set of bigoted comments by rapper Kanye West, who also suggested that he believes Jews possessed out, possess outside control and are animated by greed. In the same recording, Martinez can also be heard talking about people of Armenian descent using a stereotype. And now we'll go to the Kanye West story from JTA. Kanye West's vow to go DEFCON 3 on Jews and his anti-Semitism controversy explained by Felissa Kramer and Ron Campeas. It started with a shirt and ended in a conflagration over anti-Semitism and Republican politics. Such is the extended news cycle over multiple anti-Semitic comments during the last week by Kanye West, the artist and provocateur who prefers to go by Yee. On Tucker Carlson's Fox News show, Instagram, and Twitter, West made a string of comments reflecting a range of anti-Semitic tropes and conspiracy theories. The spree culminated with West's vow to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. DEFCON is an acronym that refers to the state of alert of America's militaries. DEFCON 3 appears to be a muddled use of that term. Still, it conveyed a clear violence to many who saw it. Twitter removed that post, saying it violated the company's policies, but not before it was shared widely by Jews and others alarmed by West's behavior. The response has become something of a Rorschach test for American Jewish anxieties. Is anti-Semitism uh, anti tolerated or sufficiently condemned? 
Has the vaunted historical relationship between blacks and Jews frayed upon repair? And why are Carlson and other prominent conservatives standing by West? The last question has only grown more pointed in the last 24 hours as footage leaked showing that West has made other anti-Semitic comments on Carlson's show that did not air, and as Orthodox Jews who are more likely to poli be politically conservative began re-engaging after the two-day Sukkot holiday that overlapped with the peak controversy. Back from the Jewish holiday now, right-wing pundit Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, wrote early Wednesday morning on Twitter, As usual, two things can be true at once. Kanye's moves toward pro-life, faith, and family conservatism are encouraging. His Death Con 3 posts and black Hebrew-Israelite language are clearly anti-Semitic and disturbing. For Jews emerging from their sukkahs or who just want to understand this fast-moving saga, here's a recap of Yeegate so far. A string of provocations culminated in West's vow to go death con three on Jewish people. West has a long track record of provocations as well as a history of bipolar disorder that the, he, he has said causes him to become paranoid. He also said it is dismissive to question whether he has stopped taking his medication whenever he speaks up. But the current moment began with a shirt. In Paris last week to showcase a fashion collection he designed, West wore a White Lives Matter jacket, a dig at the Black Lives Matter movement, and a reflection of his long-standing conservative politics. The Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Civil Rights Group, says White Lives Matter is a white supremacist phrase. The shirt elicited revulsion by many in the fashion world and embrace from political conservatives who cherish West as an authentic black voice who shares their values. On Thursday, Carlson brought West onto his show, where he praised West as advancing obviously true ideas. When their wide-ranging conversation touched on the Abraham Accords, which the Trump administration brokered between Israel and Arab countries, West said he thought Jared Kushner was motivated only by profit. I just think it was to make money, he said in a comment that echoed anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish greed. Then on Friday, West posted snapshots of a text conversation he said he had with Sean Combs, the rapper also known as Puff Daddy and Diddy. After Combs urged West to stop promoting the shirt, West responded, I'm going to use you as an example to show the Jewish people that told you to call me that no one can threaten or influence me. Shortly afterward, the post which West had captioned, Jesus is Jew, and which harkened to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about invisible Jewish control, was deleted, and Meta, Instagram's parent company, said it had removed content that violated its policies. West switched to Twitter, where he had been less active. Elon Musk, the serial entrepreneur and self-proclaimed free speech absolutist who is in the process of buying the social media platform, welcomed him publicly. West first tweeted criticism of Meta's Jewish founder, Mark Zuckerberg, then followed up by saying, Who do you think created cancel culture? Wrote Yair Rosenberg in The Atlantic in a newsletter analyzing West's anti-Semitism. He presumably did not mean the Mormons. It was on Twitter where early Sunday morning West posted the unambiguous message heard around the world. I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going death con three on Jewish people, he wrote. 
the funny thing is I actually can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew also, West added, appearing to allude to a belief core to the diverse Hebrew-Israelite movement. He then returned to the idea of Jewish control. You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone, whoever opposes your gen agenda. Within hours of West's post, the tweet was no longer accessible. Instead, it was replaced with a notice reading, this tweet violated the Twitter rules. Criticism of West's anti-Semitic comments has come from, uh, from many corners. The holiest day in Judaism was last week. Words matter. A threat to Jewish people ended once in a genocide. Your words hurt and incite violence. You were a father. Please stop. That was one of the earliest celebrity responses to West's DeathCon 3 tweet coming just hours after the post itself. It was by actress Jamie Lee Curtis, who has been involved in restoring the synagogue in her Jewish grandparents' Hungarian hometown, and later said she cried upon reading West's abhorrent tweet. Countless people issued similar statements. Whether or not Kanye West is mentally ill, there's no question he is a bigot. The Jewish Friends actor David Schwimmer wrote in an Instagram post that went viral. His hate speech calls for violence against Jews. The celebrity posts followed statements from Jewish groups, including the American Jewish Committee and the ADL, condemning West's comments before and during the Carlson interview. Kanye West has more Twitter followers than there are Jews in the world, tweeted Carly Pildes, the director of community engagement at the Anti-Defamation League, last Sunday in a post that was shared thousands of times. There are an estimated 14.8 million Jews, and he has over 30 million followers. American Jews are experiencing a historic rise in anti-Semitic incidents. His actions are extremely dangerous and must be called out. The episode has been particularly hurtful for black Jews, some of whom say they struggle to be heard when they push back against that common perception, reinforced by West's comments that black and Jewish identities are mutually exclusive. Black Jews have our own story to tell. We don't need him to say a word, tweeted Michael Twitty, the author of Kosher's Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. While some Jews, including the comedian Sarah Silverman, fretted about whether non-Jews cared about West's anti-Semitic comments, it's clear that criticism of him has come from a diverse swath of people, including the New York Democratic politicians Richie Torres and Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, journalist Dan Rather, and the black novelist Brandon Taylor. It does not matter if Kanye West is mentally ill, a morally well society defends Jews from anti-Semitic threats, tweeted Cornell Williams Brooks, a Harvard Kennedy School professor and former president of the NAACP in one representative example. Whether somebody's sick or sane does not make anti-Semitism less lethal. Physical attacks often follow verbal assaults. Words matter. But conservatives have mostly stood by West throughout. One set of people appeared to be standing by West after his Carlson interview and the subsequent criticism. White-wing Republicans who have long seen West as an ideological ally. The DEFCON 3 tweet put them in an awkward position. Since at least 2016, West has demonstrated a growing relationship with America's Christian right. That year, he told a concert audience that he would have voted for Donald Trump for president if he voted, saying that he appreciated Trump's futuristic way of speaking. 
He met with Trump shortly after Trump was elected, then endorsed him publicly in 2018. That fall, he wore a Make America Great Again hat to perform on Saturday Night Live, where he delivered a pro-Trump speech that never aired, making him a darling in an emerging discourse around cancel culture, in which conservatives allege that their views are not. In 2020, he semi-announced his own presidential candidacy, offering up a platform in an interview where he frequently referenced his belief in God as an animating idea for his politics. He also expressed concern about needing to combat the effects of the devil. To that extent, that the campaign ever existed, it was supported by Republican operatives and seen as a potential spoiler effort aimed at helping Trump's re-election campaign. At one point, West met with Kushner in Colorado and said the two were speaking almost daily. On his show last week, Carlson praised West as a kind of Christian evangelist and urged viewers not to discount his ideas as the thinking of someone with mental illness. Amid the backlash after the interview aired, some conservatives who had previously championed West rejected his comments about Jews. But many remained silent and others pressed forward with their praise, suggesting that they are at best unbothered by West's anti-Semitic comments. It's like you cannot even say the word Jewish without people getting upset. Candace Owens, the black conservative influencer who wore a White Lives Matter jacket alongside West in Paris, said in West's defense. Owens is employed by Shapiro's media company. Kanye Alan Trump, the official Twitter account of the Republican House Judiciary, posted on Thursday. The post remained up Tuesday night despite many calls, including from conservatives, for it to be deleted. Meanwhile, Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt tweeted, then deleted, on Tuesday night, America needs a Kanye West Kid Rock tour. Let's go. The white Michigan rapper has long aligned himself with the political right. Indiana's Attorney General Todd Rokita tweeted that Kanye's message in this instance uh, is fair and accurate, and regardless, he's entitled to his opinion, Added, adding the media will steamroll anyone if they do not kowtow to their way of thinking. According to them, you're not thinking correctly if you don't completely agree with them. He later clarified that he was referring only to West's criticisms of the media and Hollywood elites, not the DEFCON 3 comment, and also emphasized that he supports Israel. For many concerned about anti-Semitism among Republicans, the response has been telling. What's striking about Yee's naked anti-Semitism isn't that he crossed a line, but that for some of his power powerful allies, he didn't, wrote Michelle Goldberg, the liberal columnist in the New York Times on Tuesday. Megan McCain exhorted her fellow conservatives to break with West, saying that because the left can be critical of Israel, right bears a stronger responsibility to be a reliable ally for Jews. The Republican Party brand is supposed to be anti-celebrity and anti-elite, yet any time a big name shows even the slightest interest in conservative causes, they are granted primetime interviews and slobbered over by pundits and politicians, McCain wrote in the Daily Mail on Tuesday. Later, she added about anti-Semitism, the left cannot be relied upon to take up this cause, so the right cannot compromise itself. If conservatives don't stand with our Jewish friends, who will? Carlson held back footage in which, in which West made additional anti-Semitic comments. On Carson's show, Carlson's show, 
West's comment about Kushner was one of many in which he expressed extreme and controversial views. But unaired footage published on Tuesday by Vice revealed that West had in fact made multiple anti-Semitic comments that were edited out of the final broadcast. In one comment, he criticized Planned Parenthood as being created to control the Jew population. In explaining what he meant, he made clear that he was approaching the topic from a Hebrew-Israelite perspective. When I say Jew, I mean the twelve lost tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ, who the people known as the race black really are. Planned Parenthood's uh, Planned Parenthood does have historical roots in eugenics, which it has disavowed. It also figures in conspiracy theories that often overlap with anti-Semitic theories. West also said he regretted that his children's school celebrates Kwanzaa, an African-American holiday. I prefer my kids new Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering, he said, in a comment that appeared to allude to ideas that Jews are good with money. And when discussing how black people criticize each other, he offered Jews as an analogy. Think about us judging each other on how white we could talk, uh, on how white we could talk would be like, you know, a Jewish person judging another Jewish person on how good they danced or something, he said, before pausing and saying he thought he could get in trouble for saying that and asking for it to be edited out of the final cut. It was. Other comments reflecting paranoia about the people close to him, which West has previously said is a hallmark of his illness, were also edited out of the final cut. The result is calling attention to the role played by Carlson in promoting dangerous anti-Semitism. Carlson is a leading proponent of Great Replacement Theory, an anti-immigration philosophy that has united white supremacists across borders in their hatred of Jews and immigrants and has inspired multiple mass murders, including of Jews. Earlier this year, Carlson produced a special focused on condemning the Jewish billionaire and philanthropist George Soros, who features in many right-wing conspiracy theories, including Great Replacement. Carlson's embrace of that theory caused the head of the ADL to call for his ouster last year. The story here isn't that Kanye is anti-Semitic. We already knew that, but that Tucker worked to launder that anti-Semitism into slightly more socially acceptable forms to maintain plausible deniability with elected officials, tweeted Joel Swanson, a doctoral student in American Jewish history whose study includes anti-Semitism. Don't focus on Kanye to the exclusion of Carlson. West's current fixation on Jews follows other notable comments about them over the years. West has had a relationship with Jews that has veered from admiration into hostility, sometimes in the same moment. He has proposed a Christian movement to replicate the solidarity he sensed among Israelis when he visited the country. His then-wife, Kim Kardashian, baptized their daughter, Northwest, in Israel, where she connected with the country's ancient Armenian community. As much as he seemed to have appreciated the country, his concert there was weird and alienating. He has said that former President Barack Obama was frustrated in his efforts to legislate in part because blacks are not connected as Jews. He has worked with prominent Jews and tried to emulate them. A sitcom he filmed in 2008, inspired in part by Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm, was well received in screenings but never widely released. 
As much as he now criticizes Kushner for being an opportunist, he and his ex-wife Kardashian worked with Kushner on one of the Trump administration's rare, uh, rare domestic policy successes, criminal justice reform. Now we'll go over to the Times of Israel. Israel announces historic maritime border agreement with Lebanon. After intensive diplomacy to overcome late-breaking Lebanese modifications, Lapid set to present deal to cabinet and government for approval by Laser Berman and Jacob Magid. Israel announced on Tuesday morning that it had reached a historic agreement with Lebanon over the maritime border between the two countries in gas-rich Mediterranean waters. Prime Minister Yair Lapid said the deal would strengthen Israel's security, inject billions into Israel's economy, and ensure the stability of our northern border. The Premier will convene the Security Cabinet, followed by a special meeting of the full Cabinet to approve the agreement, the Foreign Ministry said. The Israeli announcement came minutes after the Lebanese President Michel Aoun tweeted that the final version of the offer satisfies Lebanon, meets its demands, and preserves its right to its natural wealth. Hezbollah, the powerful Shiite terror group that has threatened Israel over natural gas extraction, agreed to the terms of the deal and considers the negotiations over, Reuters reported. The successful completion of the deal comes in the wake of intense efforts by U.S. mediator Amos Hochstein in recent days to bridge the gaps between the two sides. On Tuesday morning, Israel received a draft of the agreement and determined that it meets its economic, security, and legal demands. All our demands were met. The changes that we asked for were corrected. We protected Israel's security interests and are on our way to a historic agreement, Ayel Hulada, the national security advisor and lead negotiator at the talks, said in a statement. His comments came after Lebanon received the updated draft of the U.S.-brokered maritime agreement with Israel, which Beirut's top negotiator said satisfied its previous concerns and could, immediate, uh, could imminently lead to a, a historic deal. If everything goes well, Amos Hochstein's efforts could imminently lead to a historic deal, Bo Saab told Reuters, referring to the Biden administration's energy envoy, who has led the negotiations between Jerusalem and Beirut for the past 15 months. Hochstein submitted last week what at the time was described as a final proposal aimed at settling a dispute over control of a series of gas fields off the coast of Israel and Lebanon, two countries officially at war and with no recognized maritime boundary between them. A deal would put to bed a long-running dispute over some 330 square miles of the Mediterranean Sea, covering the Karish and Kana gas fields. While details of the agreement have not been formally publicized, officials said that last week's proposal granted Jerusalem international recognition of its buoy-marked boundary 3.1 miles off the coast of the northern town of Rosh Hanikra, which Israel established in 2000 after withdrawing from southern Lebanon. After that, Israel's border will follow the southern edge of the disputed area known as Line 23. Lebanon will enjoy the economic benefits of the area north of Line 23, including the Kana gas field, through a senior Israeli official briefing reporters on the deal. Uh, though a senior Israeli official briefing reporters on the deal said that Jerusalem will receive compensation for giving up rights to Kana, a portion of which will lie in what the agreement recognizes as Israeli waters. 
While Jerusalem indicated openness to last week's proposal, it was swiftly rejected by Lebanon, which reportedly has reservations over officially recognizing the buoy mark boundary established by Israel. Lapid's office subsequently made clear that it would not back off from this demand. Lebanon also is said to have opposed the previous draft's requirement for Israel to receive a share of the revenues from potential gas produced at Kana. Saab, the Lebanese negotiator, did not reveal the details of Hochstein's latest amendments to the proposed maritime border, but it is believed to be related to both the buoy boundary and the Kana gas field. Last Thursday, Hebrew media reported that the director of the Israel Energy Ministry told ministers at a cabinet meeting that estimates on how much natural gas could be extracted from Kana, the reservoir at the center of a maritime dispute, were far less than initially thought. The revelation appeared to be an attempt by the ministry director to convince wary ministers to get on board with the U.S. broker maritime agreement by emphasizing that Israel will only be compromising on a reservoir that may offer a very limited profit while receiving international recognition control over the other reservoirs in the Mediterranean that are far more profitable. After a phone call with Hochstein last Sunday, Aoun expressed optimism on Monday about finalizing a deal within days. The negotiations went a long way and the gaps were closed over the last week, he said. Last Saturday, Israel's security establishment gave Energian a green light to start testing the Karish pipeline with full operations slated to begin within weeks. Israel has insisted it will not wait for a deal, but has only allowed Energian to take preliminary steps thus far. Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah has repeatedly threatened that his group will strike Israel if it begins gas exploration at Karish before a maritime agreement is reached. In more recent rounds of talks, Lebanon began claiming ownership of Karish in addition to Kana. The demand has been largely dismissed, with Israel insisting that its control over Karish is non-negotiable. Israel and Lebanon never agreed to demarcate their border on land either, keeping to a UN-enforced ceasefire blue line instead, and thus leaving their offshore exclusive economic zone disputed. The lack of a maritime border had not been a major issue until a decade ago, when a gas discovery bonanza began in the eastern Mediterranean, potentially reshaping the region's economic future. Successive U.S. administrations have sought to broker a maritime agreement, with Hochstein leading the talks during the Obama administration as well. The effort was picked up several years later when Donald Trump was president, but made little progress. Next from JTA, Stanford University apologizes for discriminating against Jewish applicants in the 1950s by Asaf Elia Shalev. An official investigation by Stanford University released Wednesday confirmed long-standing suspicions that university administrators acted to limit Jewish enrollment in the 1950s while publicly denying that they were doing so. In tandem with the release of the report, Stanford's president, Mark Tessier-Levine, apologized to the Jewish community on behalf of the university. This ugly component of Stanford's history, confirmed by this new report, is saddening and deeply troubling, Tessier-Levine wrote. As a university, we must acknowledge it and confront it as part of our history, as repellent as it is, and seek to do better. 
Tessier Levine also wrote that Stanford will work to ensure that it is welcoming to Jewish students today by increasing anti-bias training, creating a dedicated advisory committee, paying more attention to Jewish holiday cycles and university scheduling and other measures. The university's first day of classes this fall took place on Rosh Hashanah. Stanford convened the task force that produced the report last year after a historian published his discovery of documents left behind by Stanford's admissions director from 1950 to 1970, Rixford Snyder, suggesting that Snyder was biased against Jews and interested in reducing their enrollment at the university. A similar conclusion was reached by the task force, which consisted of faculty, staff, trustees, alumni, and students. For decades, it's been understood that uh, by many Jews in California that Stanford either had or has a bias against Jewish applicants, said Stanford history professor Ari Y. Kelman, who chaired the task force. What we found was that the director of admissions, with knowledge of other members of high administration of the university, took steps to limit the number of Jewish students that were enrolled at Stanford. Evidence of Snyder's intentions is found in a 1953 memo written by his colleague Fred Glover that was sent to then-Stanford President Wallace Sterling. Glover noted that Snyder felt too many of Stanford's male applicants were Jewish and that the university must take action to change the situation. Snyder feels that this problem is loaded with dynamite, and he wanted you to know about it as he says that the situation forces him to disregard our stated policy of paying no attention to the race or religion of applicants, Glover wrote. According to the archival material, Snyder acted to accomplish his goal of reducing Jewish admissions by targeting Beverly Hills High School and Fairfax High School, two Los Angeles schools with predominantly Jewish student bodies. If we accept a few Jewish applicants from these schools the following year, we get a flood of Jewish applicants, Glover wrote, relaying Snyder's concern. After the date of that memo, for example, Snyder dropped Beverly Hills and Fairfax from his recruitment efforts at Southern California schools, according to Snyder's travel itineraries found in the university's archives. An analysis of enrollment data showed that Stanford soon saw a sharp drop in enrollment from these two schools. Stanford's, hi Stanford's history of discrimination against Jews and other minorities is far from unique among elite universities. At earlier points in the 20th century, many Ivy League schools enacted far more blatant policies of discrimination, such as official religious and racial quotas, controlling the number of Jews enrolled. The U.S. Supreme Court this year will consider two cases about affirmative action, a contemporary practice aimed at ensuring diversity that its critics say amounts to discrimination against students from some backgrounds. The fact that the anti-Semitism uncovered at Stanford was more subtle and came later is instructive as institutions across the country are increasingly reckoning with their past, said Stanford historian Emily J. Levine, who was part of the task force. In the 1950s, it was no longer as acceptable to be so overtly anti-Semitic, Levine said. Anti-Semitism didn't so much go away as it went underground. And because the discrimination went underground, specialized research skills, the kind that students can learn at Stanford, were needed to parse the archival material and understand the methods of reducing Jewish student enrollment and their impact, she said. For Levine, 
A moral commitment accompanied by research and teaching can create an environment for healing from the past. The process of collective institutional memory and self-reflective criticism as a community right can actually make individuals feel more connected to each other and trust their institution more. About 7% of Stanford's undergraduates today are Jewish, according to data shared publicly by the university's Hillel. Stanford's public apology and commitment to improving Jewish life on campus through concrete steps are in line with the process of redress required under Teshuva, a Jewish concept about returning to the path of righteousness, according to Rabbi Lori Han Tapper, the university's associate dean for religious and spiritual life. And the timing amid the Jewish high holidays couldn't have been more appropriate, she said. Has there been change since the 50s? Yes. We have a wonderful, vibrant campus now, and the anti-Semitism still exists, Han Tapper said. So to be able to name it to bring it out of the shadows is step one in continuing to grow our community. And next, we'll go over to e-Jewish philanthropy, Elie Wiesel's namesake foundation to place focus on funding advocacy for Uyghurs. The foundation will become a grant maker beginning next year by Ben Sales. When Alicia Wiesel, son of Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Elie Wiesel, spoke at a United Nations commemoration on International Holocaust Remembrance Day last January, he began with the topics one might expect. The suffering of his father and grandfather at the hands of the Nazis, the challenges of children of survivors like himself, and the dangers of present-day anti-Semitism. But he devoted the last minute of his three-minute speech to a crisis half a world away from Auschwitz, the persecution of China's Uyghur Muslim minority. My father firmly believed that his faith required him to fight hatred and oppression everywhere, the younger Wiesel said. Are we brave enough to follow? China inflicts mass internment, forced labor, and forced sterilization on the Uyghur people. The speech was one of a few ways Wiesel spoke out earlier this year about the plight of the Uyghurs, writing a viral Facebook post a week later on the occasion of the start of the Beijing Olympics, and publishing a full-page ad by the Elie Wiesel Foundation for, Humanities, uh, for Humanity in the New York Times, calling for a boycott of the Games unless China changed its policy. The ad was co-signed by several Uyghur rights groups. Now, e-Jewish philanthropy has learned Wiesel has made speaking out on the Uyghur genocide a central part of the transformation of his father's namesake foundation. The foundation is becoming a grant maker, and Uyghur advocacy is one of its two initial focuses. The other is moral education through a Jewish lens. Wiesel told e-Jewish philanthropy that he sees both as ways to carry on his father's decades of activism. We're really thinking about ways that align with the different hats that my father wore, the different roles in which he showed up in the world, Wiesel told the Jewish philanthropy. My father was an activist. This year, the activist lane will be focused on the Uyghur cause. Finding ways to help the Uyghur people articulate their cause, achieve change, gain the recognition that their cause deserves. The foundation hasn't settled on a grant-making budget yet, but plans to award approximately $250,000 to half a million dollars in total to two groups, each representing one of the focuses. The grants will be awarded early next year and will be determined by, advocacy, uh, by advisory committees, 
each including some marquee names. The advisory board on the Uyghur grants includes former Soviet Refusenik and Jewish Agency for Israel Chair Natan Sharansky, as well as Golhumar Heitiwahi, the daughter of a Uyghur woman, Golbahar Heitiwahi, who wrote a memoir detailing her experience in a Chinese concentration camp. What makes it especially powerful is the name of Elie Wiesel behind it, said Mark Hetfield, CEO of the Jewish refugee aid group Hyas, who is also on the advisory board. That's where I think the real value add is. We don't want to equate the Uyghur genocide or compare it to the Holocaust, but it is a genocide. While the elder Wiesel was alive, his foundation focused on convening conferences of fellow Nobel Peace Prize winners as well as other dignitaries to advance peace and human rights. It also runs educational centers for Ethiopian Israelis. The foundation was a victim of Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme in 2008, but Wiesel says it is now on second footing and has a budget of approximately $600,000 and three employees. The younger Wiesel, who worked for Goldman Sachs for 25 years, including as its chief information officer, is embarking on a new financial business venture while he also oversees the foundation's transformation. The foundation will fundraise to cover the grants. We're not intending to begin fun fundraising immediately, but we want to establish a track record that we can make smart, thoughtful, impactful gifts by using the combination of my father's name, my input, and the assets that we have to achieve change, Wiesel said. Wiesel has also been outspoken on other issues, including combating anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, but he said the focus on Uyghur advocacy was inspired by his father's activism in the movement to free Soviet Jewry, a cause that the elder Wiesel helped advance in the Jewish community by invoking his experience as a Holocaust survivor. Alicia Wiesel sees confronting China on the Uyghur genocide as a challenge of similar magnitude. My father had no problem standing up to the biggest aggressors in the world, Wiesel said. When the big, powerful Soviet Union was keeping Soviet dissidents behind bars and pre preventing them from emigrating to Israel simply because they were Jewish, my father had no problem going up to one of the biggest presences on the world stage and challenging them through his actions. In addition, while Wiesel expects that the selection process for the Moral Education Grant will privilege Jewish organizations, he isn't excluding the possibility that a non-Jewish group may be selected. The foundation stands to join other Jewish groups that have spoken out on the Uyghur genocide. Jewish World Watch, which was founded 18 years ago to oppose the genocide in Darfur, advocated for U.S. legislation passed in 2021, banning goods made with forced labor in the Chinese province of Xinjiang, which is the Uyghur population center, and created a database of those companies with more than 900 entries, including Coca-Cola, Apple, BMW, Volkswagen, Nike, and others. Because of what's happening to the Uyghurs and how scarily similar it is, people being taken in the night, families being separated, being put on trains, sent to concentration camps, having your head shaved when you arrive, there is a unique role that the Jewish community can play Serena Oberstein, Jewish World Watch's executive director, told DJP. We know better than anyone else what happens when the world sits silent, which means we have to be amplifying voices. Wiesel knows that the Foundation's grants alone will not end the oppression of the Uyghurs and hopes to work in partnership with other organizations, including Jewish groups. 
but he hopes that along with advancing that cause, the Foundation's work on behalf of the Uyghurs will show people that the legacy of Elie Wiesel extends beyond the seminal memoir Night and is still relevant in the present day. In the coming years, success is, what, is that when people think of my father, the experience doesn't stop at night, he said. There's this idea that all of these people who are reading Night, and thank God so many people are reading Night, there's this concept that Elie Wiesel and the things he stood for are still taking place in the modern day. And next we'll go back to JTA. Who lose the patient gets at a dynamic rarely seen on TV. Orthodox Reform Tensions by Linda Buchwald. Episode 3 of The Patient, the well-received psychological thriller series on Hulu about a serial killer who kidnaps his therapist, involves a flashback to an Orthodox wedding. Ezra, the son of the protagonist therapist Alan Strauss, and reform cantor Beth Strauss is marrying an Orthodox woman named Chava. Guitar in hand, Beth sings Dodi Lee, a traditional Jewish wedding song, knowing that women are not allowed to sing in the presence of men in this Orthodox community. As she performs, some men get up to leave. Ezra and his bride stay but look uncomfortable. The moment gets at the tension that Ezra's transition out of the reform lifestyle of his upbringing and into orthodoxy has wrought within the Strauss family, but the scene was not originally written this way. Although the show's creators, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, are both Jewish, they weren't aware of the orthodox prohibitions against women singing in front of men and had first written the moment as a nice memory of a mother singing in her son's wedding. The show's consultant, Rabbi Menachem Hecht, a teacher at the modern orthodox Yula Yeshiva High School in Los Angeles, informed the duo of the rule, which thrilled them because they said it made the scene more interesting and complicated. The final product got across the viewpoints of both denominations in a fair way, Hecht said. There's definitely a way to run that scene where it just makes Orthodox Jews look anti-women and bigoted, Hecht said. The point wasn't just to make them look bad, it was to show how there could be real tension there. The scene and the consultation behind it points to the level of Jewishness that Fields and Weisberg wove into the fabric of The Patient, which debuted August 30th and is still releasing weekly episodes on FX on Hulu through the finality, uh, through the finale on October 25th. The pair who also created the acclaimed Cold War spy drama The Americans have spoken at length about their Jewish backgrounds. Fields as the son of a Reformed rabbi, and Weisberg as the son of Reformed parents who attended the conservative, us conservative synagogue. In The Patient, Alan, played by the non-Jewish Steve Carell, a casting choice they were asked to defend on a press tour, is a widower having lost his wife Beth, played by Laura Niemi, to cancer. She was a cantor at a Reformed synagogue, and their son Ezra, played by Andrew Leeds, turns to Orthodox Judaism in college, a path that his parents didn't understand. A deranged new patient named Sam, Domnog Leeson, kidnaps Alan in an attempt to cure his own murderous impulses. Part of Alan's work with Sam is getting him to understand other viewpoints. Just because someone says something that Sam doesn't like or perceives as rude, it doesn't mean they deserve to die. I think on some level, consciously, and on some level, unconsciously, we were dealing with general and specific themes of intolerance 
and it seemed interesting to explore the challenges of differences that from the outside might seem relatively small, but from the inside seem like a chasm, Fields told JTA. Fields and Weisberg don't spend screen time educating the viewers on the intricacy of, the orthodox, of orthodox practices that show up in the series. In another scene, Ezra, his sister, and their families are having dinner at Alan and Beth's house. Beth serves her daughter's children ice cream. As Ezra's children look on, unable to partake, eating food they brought in Tupperware. The entire scene is less than a minute long, so the audience needs to understand quickly what is happening. We are not believers in exposition. We don't want to spell it out. We used to joke on the Americans that who could understand this? We barely understand this. Nobody's going to understand it, but as long as they feel it, that's what's good, Weisberg said. Fields and Weisberg worked with the production design and set decorating team to ensure that all the details were right, such as paper plates for Ezra's family, who could not eat on the dishes that are normally used to serve unkosher food. Though Beth's actions in that scene might seem cruel to some, they fit the character of a woman who devoted her life to Reform Judaism. Reform Rabbi Robin Frisch of Temple Menorah Knesset High in Philadelphia told the JTA, that when her son turned to Orthodox Judaism at age 16, she felt rejected at first. We raised our kids, we thought, with this meaningful Jewish life. He never said it straight out, but there clearly uh, there were things we did that were not what he wanted, Frisch said. She said her work with interfaith couples as the director of the Rukin Rabbinic Fellowship for 18 Doors, a national nonprofit organization that helps interfaith couples and families, helped her eventually accept her son's choices. She added that she wants to start a nonprofit like 18 Doors for families with children who became Orthodox to help them through the challenges and blessings of such a change. To be a Jew in America is to know a bunch of people who have gone through similar iterations of this sort of family dynamics, Fields said. In addition to the family divides, Judaism plays an important role in other aspects of the story. In one episode, Alan dreams of himself in the barracks of Auschwitz. It seemed obvious to us that a Jewish person locked in a guy's basement facing death as Alan Strauss was would associate with that imagery, said Weisberg. We grew up with that imagery and that history really infused in our lives, in synagogue, in Sunday school, in our regular schools and at home. Anybody tries to kill me, I'm going there. As Alan tries to teach Sam about empathy so that he can start thinking of his victims as people, consider what their families need. He talks about Jewish rituals associated with death, including the mourner's Kaddish. The episode released last Tuesday is titled Kaddish for the prayer that holds significant meaning to Fields and Weisberg. I remember my dad telling me about the Kaddish when I was very young. It's not like he sat down and explained prayers to me, but I remember him saying that it was a prayer that began as students giving thanks for their teachers. And then it became something that we said to give thanks for everybody, for those who meant something to us in life, said Fields. And it was a prayer of thanks, not a prayer of loss. And that always stuck with me. Fields and Weisberg recorded versions of the prayer for Carell, who had to recite it in its entirety in the show. I loved being able to assure him that he sounded great when he was saying it, because in any American congregation, it's not like there's the right way, Weisberg said. Every Jew is saying it differently and pronouncing all the words differently, so he sounded a lot like me and everybody else I knew. 
When the pair first reached out to Hecht, he assumed that the main plot of the show revolved around Jewish themes. They put so much thought into it and so many resources into this orthodox story, and I figured that was the show. And then when I finally saw the script, I was like, wait, this isn't the show at all. This is like a minute and a half of the show across the whole season, Hecht said. I just thought this speaks to who these folks are and who are putting this together and the degree to which they are approaching this with a sense of respect and with seriousness and with rigor. Fields said it was a product of how deep their, Juda uh, their Jewish identities run. It's been really meaningful to be able to tell a story that we hope is relatable to everybody, that we hope ultimately is about everyone's common humanity and common experience, but is expressed through particular character dynamics that are just deep inside us culturally, he said. One doesn't often get the chance to do that, so it means a lot. And next from JTA, Biden administration expands penalties for complying with Arab League boycott of Israel by Ron Campeas. The Biden administration will enhance penalties for compliance with the decades-old Arab League boycott of Israel at a moment when some longtime participants have opted out and others are doubling down. Matthew Axelrod, the Assistant Commerce Secretary for Export Enforcement, told the American Jewish Committee last Thursday that those complying with the boycott will now be required to admit wrongdoing before settling with the U.S. government and that they will be subject to penalties if their foreign subsidiaries comply with the, uh, with the boycott. Companies until now did not have to acknowledge participating in the boycott when they settled charges. Axelrod, meeting with the AJC at its Washington, D.C. office, said the boycott, which has existed since before Israel was established, as a state, and which Congress made illegal in the 1970s, was weakening. Notably, he said, the four Arab countries that in 2020 normalized relations with Israel under the Abraham Accords are all members of the Arab League and all have discarded the boycott. Other countries were recommitting to their Israel boycotts, however, he said. Holdouts, like Assad Syria, have categorically rejected normalization with Israel, Axelrod said, according to an AJC release, and in May, Iraq passed a law that even criminalizes normalization of relations with Israel. This recent doubling down on anti-Israeli sentiment by countries like Syria and Iraq comes at a time of shocking growth in anti-Semitism, what AJC notes as the world's oldest hatred, more broadly, both here in the United States and around the globe. Axelrod's briefing with the AJC was the first under the new group's CEO, former Democratic Congressman Ted Deutsch. Deutsch said battling the boycott was still important even as it becomes less relevant. Despite warming relations some Arab nations have with Israel, the Arab League needlessly persists in this boycott which has done nothing to hinder Israel from becoming an economic powerhouse in the Middle East, he said. We applaud the Commerce Department's efforts to sanction American firms that bow to the demands of or seek to curry favor with boycotting nations. They must be held accountable for activities that help spread anti-Zionist sentiment. And now we'll go over to the New York Jewish Week. State official orders city to enforce secular education at Brooklyn Yeshiva by Andrew Silo Carroll. New York State's Commissioner of Education has ordered the city to work with the yeshiva in Williamsburg on a plan for improving its secular education. The decision, issued last week by Commissioner Betty Rosa, 
is a response to a lawsuit brought by Beatrice Weber, a formerly Hasidic mother of 10 who now leads Gafed, the leading advocacy group pressing for improvements in secular learning at Haredi Orthodox private schools. Rose's decision was first reported by the New York Times, which said the ruling represents the first time that the state has taken action against a Hasidic boys' school and could be a harbinger of significantly tougher oversight of Hasidic schools. Rosa wrote that the Brooklyn school Yeshiva Masivta Aragath Habosem had repeatedly declined to comply with and Eric, uh, Mayor Eric Adams' education department had failed to enforce state education law requiring that it offer learning in math, English, and other subjects substantially equivalent to that offered in public schools. Weber praised the ruling. The state did right, she told the Times. Hopefully now things will actually change. A spokesman for a group that represents yeshivas on religious liberty grounds defended Yeshiva Masifta Aragatha Bosom and called the ruling disappointing. Educators from the city's Department of Education visited the school several times and determined that it met the substantial equivalent standard. Richard Bamberger, a spokesman for Parents for Educational and Religious Liberty in Schools, or Pearls, told the Times. The battle over secular education at the religious schools, long reported on by the New York Jewish Week and other Jewish media, broke out widely last month when the New York Times reported the Hasidic boys' schools were collecting taxpayer dollars while failing to provide an adequate general studies education to their students. Yeshivas and their supporters have responded with outrage to new state rules implemented two weeks ago that would withdraw state funding from non-public schools that do not follow state law. Defenders of the yeshivas say their vigorous religious curriculums provide adequate preparation for the lives Hasidic Jews intend to lead and that the state should not interfere with their religious liberty. In a related development, the Times reported that Pearls, yeshivas, and other groups have sued the state seeking to have the new regulations overturned. Joining the suit are the Agudath Israel of America, Torah Umasora, Masivta Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Berlin, Yeshiva Torah Vodath, Masivta Teferet Jerusalem, Rabbi Jacob Joseph School, and Yeshiva Hassan Sofer, the Solomon Kluger School. Meanwhile, Yafed filed a complaint with State Attorney General Letitia James alleging that a group of New York City yeshivas has collected $28 million in state funding despite failing to meet state standards when it comes to secular education. At a minimum, these funds should be withdrawn and have to be returned to the state, Naftali Moster, founder of Yafed, told Politico. And as Jews around the world are concluding the holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Boots, two holidays coming up this week to wrap up all the holidays in the fall until we get to Hanukkah. Um, Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly, is October 17th, beginning sundown the evening of the 16th. Historically allowed an extra day in Jerusalem for Jewish pilgrims on their journey to the temple. Tefillat Geshem, the prayer for rain, and Hallel, psalms of thanksgiving and joy, and Yisker, memorial prayers, are recited on that day. And then, October 18th, 
Simchat Torah, the rejoicing of the Torah, the annual cycle of reading the Torah is concluded and a new cycle is begun. That's celebrated in the synagogue with singing, dancing, and Torah processionals. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.